You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. make your way in. I won't be here the whole time, I promise. All of you here in the back. I want to begin by reading a passage of scripture that we're going to be spending some time thinking through this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. It says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Welcome to Christmas Eve in the realm. I'm excited for you to join us this morning in a unique service, something that we do uh, at this point once a year on average, uh, for what will be a mix of worship and sermon, but in a little bit of a different order. Obviously, the order of the room this morning is a little different. We've arranged it to really a worship in the rhombus, if we're being accurate, but uh, worship in the round is what we call it. Beyond the order of the room being a little different, the order of service is going to be a little different as well. We will begin here in a moment with a song, but rather than doing all the songs up front and then opening God's Word together, we're going to go back and forth between worshiping and reading scripture. And what that will mean for you, practically speaking, is that you're gonna be standing and sitting a little bit more than usual. Hope that you're okay with that. And each week of the Advent series, and I'm gonna go ahead and join you on the floor now. Uh, In each week of the Advent series, we have highlighted a particular theme, and we've highlighted that theme with a song, a Christmas carol. Week one, we talked about hope, and we sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem thought about the ways in which our hopes and our fears throughout all the years were met in the Lord Jesus that night in Bethlehem. In week two, we talked about peace, and we thought about that deeply peaceful imagery conveyed in a way in a manger, the cattle lowing, stars shining down, the baby Jesus awake and not crying. Last week, we talked about joy, and we sang joy to the world. And we we thought about not only the joy that we found in the first advent in the manger, but the joy we anticipate in the second advent when Christ comes back to us. This morning, if it was not already apparent by the reading of 1 Corinthians 13, our final theme is love. And what better song to illustrate love than what is perhaps my favorite Christmas carol and the overarching title of this entire Advent series, O Holy Night. In verse three, the final verse of this song, we sing, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. So we're gonna not only think this morning through what love is according to 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven, but we're also gonna look at the ways in which Jesus demonstrated this kind of love in various passages throughout the New Testament. One of the things that we find is that the love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus perfectly displays in his life. And so we're gonna think about that and look at those various passages. But before we do that, we're gonna begin by thinking about that night when God came down to us and took a 
upon himself human flesh and dwelt among us. It was a hopeful night. It was a peaceful night. It was a joyful night, but more than anything else, it was a holy night. Let's sing together. First thing that Paul says in verse four is that love, Advent love, should be patient and pleasant. He says in verse four that love is patient and kind. That it should be patient towards others and kind towards others. These are words often found together in couplet form. Romans chapter 2, 4. 2 Corinthians 6, 6. It's of course mentioned together as part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 21. The idea here is that both of these words convey the same concept, but one in a passive sense and one in an active sense. So think about this. Patience is in some sense passive, right? It's a response to something that someone is doing to you or perhaps something that someone should be doing but is not doing. If someone is acting foolishly, patience is the ability to endure their behavior without reacting in a sinful manner. It's the Greek term makrothemia, to be slow towards or to be long enduring, to be long suffering. I saw a video recently of a uh, feral cat that had been taken into a vet uh, to have medications administered to it. It was sick or hurting. And so this vet was administering medication to this cat and the cat was biting and clawing at him as all cats do, I might add. Dog person here, sorry, not sorry. But as the cat was clawing and biting and hissing, the vet was you know, very slowly and quietly reassuring the animal that it was gonna be okay. That he was giving him the medicine, trying to calm him down. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of biblical patience, patient love. The ability to love and reassure while someone is biting and scratching you. It's the epitome of patient love. And it's coupled with the idea of kindness. So while patience is passive in some sense, it's a response to something. Kindness is just the active attribute, right? It costs zero dollars to be kind to people. Here's the thing about kindness that I think we miss sometimes, is that kindness is truly powerful. It's it's not just nice, it's powerful. What does the Bible say about the kindness of God? What does the kindness of God accomplish in the life of a person? Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God, Paul says, that leads us to repentance. Kindness is powerful. You can be kindness to, or kind to anyone regardless of, of what they've done to you or what they haven't done for you. The question is, why would I be kind or patient to other people? Why should I be patient with someone who is sinfully acting against me? Why should I be kind towards someone who I don't think has earned my kindness? Of course, the answer is quite simple, right? It's because it's what Jesus did for me. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What he's saying is, is that Jesus was patient with me, that he might be an example to you that if he can save me, he can save anyone. If he can save a wretch like me, someone who has done the horrible things that I have done, and you see that happening, then you know he can save you too. This is one way I believe we demonstrate real Advent love to people, by patiently and kindly loving them in the same way that Jesus patiently and kindly loves us. 
I make mistakes. I sin. I make a mess out of things the moment I am able to. And yet Jesus is patient with me. He is kind towards me because he loves me. And Paul is saying, your love then should likewise be patient and kind regardless of what other people are doing. And here's the beauty of this. When you do this, we're actually giving those people a tangible experience of the gospel. The beauty and the power of the gospel. And what other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? Only the loving kindness of a holy God. And so we're going to stand together, church, and sing to our holy God here this morning. Paul continues, love should not only be patient and pleasant, but humble and holy. Verse 4, he says, love does not envy or boast. Now, envy is a tricky thing, isn't it? It's a tricky thing. It's one of those things that I think we sometimes write off as sort of a minor issue. Everyone has envy every now and again. Not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as, say, adultery or murder. So we just sort of tolerate it. And yet, Scripture takes this very seriously. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Not a very good thing. James 3.16, For where jealousy or envy, same exact word, and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Envy is included, of course, in the list of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not the most Merry Christmas Eve Bible verse to read you. But notice what Paul did there. He put envy on the same level as idolatry and immorality. He says, those who do these things don't inherit the kingdom. This is a serious offense. This is perhaps why Jesus taught us to take such drastic measures to avoid such behavior, correct? If your eye causes you to stumble, what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Did I need to do the sound effects? No. Did I want to? Yes. If you see things, in other words, that make you envious, you are to do everything in your power to put those things to death. The point is not self-mutilation. It's, it's hyperbole. It's take every drastic measure. Make every effort to avoid this. Why? Because understand, this is what I want you to connect with this morning. Envy is in a very real sense the opposite of holiness. So Christ calls us to holiness, to pursue holiness, not to pursue things that don't belong to us. You're to find satisfaction in him, not in something else. In fact, think about it this way. Envy is the admission that Jesus is not enough. Envy says, I love Jesus, but I also need this other thing that he can't provide for me. Envy in the Christian life is Jesus plus fill in the blank. And I can tell you right now, if your baseline is Jesus plus something else, you will be incapable of loving others in the way that 1 Corinthians 13 dictates to you. 
Paul says, love does not envy, but not only that, love does not boast. In other words, love should not only be holy, but humble. Should not ever be self-serving. My love should always be not only for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others as well. Now, I want to say that again. Your love should not only look to your interests, but to the interests of others. Why do I say that? Because it's what Paul says, Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of other words. In other words, it is okay to look out for your own interest as long as you don't do so to the detriment of other people in your life. There's a tendency in Christian circles to emphasize serving others and loving, uh, loving others and sacrificing for others and totally rejecting your own needs or your own interests. That's just asceticism. Like if you are loving others and serving others and just cutting yourself off from everything, congratulations, you're now a 10th century monk. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not that you should reject all of your needs. It's that your needs don't come before other people. Others come first. You look to others first. Paul says, he goes on in Philippians 2, he says in verses 5 to 9, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the love that Jesus taught us. A love that is holy and humble. A love that sees Jesus as enough and looks to the interests of others as well. See, when you love in this way, you actually incite joy. Not only in your own life as you're loving others in the way you were designed to love, but joy in other people as you love them because you will have loved them in the way that God designed you to love them. You bring joy to the world when you do that. So why don't we stand together and sing about that great joy to the Lord we bring. 1 Corinthians 13 continues, verses 4 and 5. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance, the Greek term fusio, a word that means to inflate or puff up. Mixed with rude, oskomeneo, to behave in an unbecoming manner. In other words, when you put these two words together, it forms the idea of seeing others as less than or unworthy of your love. There, there are just some people, if we're being honest, who have sinned so egregiously, that, that have done things so unspeakable, they're just not worthy of your love, right? They're un, unlovable people. You should just write them off. Don't, don't waste your time on them any longer. Paul says that genuine Advent love never thinks this way. I said this two weeks ago, I think it bears repeating here. When I think less of someone because of their sin, it usually indicates that I think more of myself than I should. Love that is arrogant or rude sees others as less valuable or less worthy. That's not biblical Advent love. It reveals something's wrong with my heart, not with the heart of the other person. But truly, Jesus taught us to love one another differently. A few weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, we saw Jesus loving others who were social outcasts or social rejects of sorts. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. It says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and with his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. These are the people who you would be naturally inclined to just sort of write off, reject, not want to have anything to do with, be arrogant or rude towards. That's exactly the sentiment, by the way, of the other religious leaders. Verse 16, it says, And the, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with those people? Sinners, tax collectors. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. See, Jesus taught by example to love the unlovable, to reject arrogance or rudeness towards those who are hurting and broken, and rather embrace them, embrace the hurting, embrace the lost. It's so easy during Christmas to gather together with a good-looking bunch of people in a church, all your happy, smiling faces, and sing, Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. It's much more like Jesus to gather together and to sing, Oh, come all you unfaithful, you weak and unstable. Come and know that you are not alone. Come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come and see what your God has done. That describes a love that's caring and considerate. It embraces the broken and the brokenhearted. That's the love that Jesus embodies. And so I want to ask you now, all of you unfaithful, would you stand and sing? that Jesus taught us should be patient and pleasant. It should be humble and holy. It should be caring and considerate. Fourth, it should be subjected and submissive. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, it does not insist on its own way. Paul is essentially framing the same thing that he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, just earlier in this letter. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul in this chapter is making a distinction between what we often refer to here as the law of liberty and the law of love. The law of liberty says this, that in Christ I am free to do things that were formerly forbidden in the old covenant. So there's freedom now in Christ that was different than the old covenant. We have freedom, and that freedom should not be dictated to you by the conscience of another individual. We believe the Bible teaches in the freedom of human conscience, that, Lord, that Christ is Lord over every human conscience. Paul goes on to say that, 1 Corinthians 10, 29, for why should my liberty, why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? It shouldn't be. So here's the scenario. Let's imagine that you're with a dear brother or sister in Christ, and you enjoy watching a certain genre of movies or listening to a certain genre of music that makes your brother or sister in Christ uncomfortable or violates their conscience in some way. The law of liberty says, I will choose my preference to watch or listen over people, over the conscience of my brother or sister in Christ. That's the law of liberty. However, the law of love says this, I value people over preference. 
So I'll say, you know what? I can watch this or listen to this at any other time when this brother or sister is not around. Why not right now choose something that honors them rather than violates their conscience? Now come back to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 13.5. That is what Paul means when he says, love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on my preference. It values people over preferences. Love is, in other words, submissive. Now here's the real question on the table, though. To whom should my love be subjected and submissive? Do I just submit my love to every person in my life? To every single human being? Or, or maybe do I, do I baptize it a little bit and just say, I'm going to submit my love to only Christians. Non-Christians, right? But Christians, okay, I'll submit my love to them. Is that what Paul is saying here? This is an important question. Because if, if we don't get this right we very quickly end up becoming quite codependent. Because here's what happens. Your love might dictate for me something opposite of what your love might dictate for me. And so I end up actually being loveless and self-contradictory. So the question is important. To whom should my love be submissive and subjective? The answer is the classic. If you don't know the answer in Sunday school, what do you throw out? Jesus! This is the example Jesus taught, isn't it? A love that is submitted to God. John chapter five, Jesus talks about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and us. He says in verse 19, amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. This is an incredible verse, by the way. Hear what I just said. Jesus can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. That's a remarkable thing. In other words, he is totally submitted to the Father. Verse 19 continues, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that they all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus has fully submitted to the Father, and now that the Father has given all authority to the Son, we are to be fully submitted to Him. Truly, He taught us to love one another with a love that is submitted to God. So you are to love others in a way that doesn't insist on your own preferences, places the consciences of other people before your own, not because you've submitted yourself to them, but because you've submitted yourself to Christ as Lord. And listen, when you do that, others are blessed and Christ is glorified. Others are blessed when I love them the way that Jesus dictates to me because Jesus' definition of love is greater than mine or yours. And Christ is glorified ultimately when I do this because it rightly recognizes him as king. See, the first advent is all about the manger. But Jesus is no longer in the manger. He sits upon the throne. And the reality is, God incarnate, he has always been on the throne. He's the only one that embodies the manger throne. And so what I invite you now to stand and worship him, our king, on the manger throne. Last thing Paul says is that your love should be amicable and accountable. He goes on in verse five through verse six and says, love does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The term irritable here, it means to stir up or incite. Resentful, lagizomai, to count or calculate. The idea here is that your, your love should prevent you from, from becoming angry with someone when they make mistakes. It should prevent you from keeping count of all the wrong things they do. In fact, the NIV and the NASB translate this, love keeps no record of wrongs. Your love for people should allow you, in other words, to look past their sin and love them in spite of their failures. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that you let others take advantage of you or that you never hold others accountable. Paul goes on to say, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It doesn't approve of your sin. In other words, it rejoices when sin is corrected. Typically, people are going to err on one side or the other, right? You're either going to be very amicable or you're going to be very interested in holding accountable. Rarely are you going to be able to do both at the same time well. It's easy to be amicable if you have no interest in holding people others or holding accountable others for their sin. Accountability creates tension, it creates confrontation. And so if you remove the interest of accountability, you can be one of the most amicable people on earth, right? Just be kind of nice more or less an amicable person now. However, if you're very interested in holding others accountable, it's gonna be very difficult. You're gonna to have to work overtime to be amicable towards those people. But Paul says, your love should be both of these things together. It should be interested in unity and harmony. It should be interested in not keeping record of wrongs. It won't be incited unto anger, but at the same time, it's gonna be unwilling to affirm sin when it occurs. This is precisely, by the way, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated, is it not? If you remember in John chapter 8, uh, a woman who has been caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. Verse 5, it says, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In other words, they're asking him, you going to hold her accountable, Jesus, or not? Now for them, accountability, the only option is we have to stone her to death. But Jesus, in very typical fashion, responds to them in a way that only he is able. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, what happens? They walk away. And so you think at this point, okay, Jesus is very amicable. He's not at all interested in holding her accountable whatsoever for this obvious sin that she has committed. But look at how he responds, verses 10 and 11. He says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Where, where are they? Did has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, great, go celebrate. You're off the hook. No, that's not what he says. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, his love is amicable. It seeks her well-being. It prevents her from being stoned to death, but it's also unwilling to let her off the hook. Go and don't do this anymore. He's saying both, you have sinned, I'm not gonna ignore that, I'm not gonna let that off the hook, I'm not gonna let that slide, but at the same time, I'm gonna love you in a manner that is restorative in nature. See, Advent's final theme is love, and it's not just any kind of love, it's not a cheap love, it's not a worldly love. It is a love that is patient with people as they fail, and they will fail, just like you will fail, and I will fail. Advent love is patient and pleasant towards people. 
It is humble in that it doesn't see yourself as greater than other people. And it is holy in that it reveres God above all things, Christ above all things. It is caring and considerate. It seeks the well-being of other people. It is subjected and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all creation. And it is amicable, but also willing to hold accountable. It's unlike any love, honestly, that you can find in the world. It is unique. That is Advent love. When we sing, truly he taught us to love one another, that's what we mean. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, as Paul says in verse 7. A love that was first revealed in a manger in the little backwoods town of Bethlehem on an otherwise silent night. 2007, I came to faith in this church. My wife and I had just been married not even a year, and I grew up in a home that was not Christian, didn't have any real Christmas traditions that had anything to do with Jesus, and so it was sort of forging our own path. And one of the first traditions that Jessica and I began with many of you was uh, singing these three Christmas carols together as a church body as our founding pastor, Dr. James Reeves, led us on the guitar culminating in a candle lighting where we sing Silent Night together and remember the light of the world that came into darkness. And it's, it's been awesome as my kids have grown up and gotten a little bit older. They're 10, 10 and 7. They were in a uh, second service with us. We got to light candles together. And this is a part of their tradition that they're growing up with, something that I didn't have as a kid. It's a tradition that I want to pass on to as many people as I can. And so every year I belabor Dr. Reeves to come back and sing songs with us. And every year he agrees. And so I want to invite you now to stand as we sing these three precious Christmas carols and light a candle at the end. Amen. Church, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the light of the world that comes into darkness. Thank you for your spirit that you give us, that we might love others with this kind of love that you have so eloquently put down on paper in 1 Corinthians 13. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may blow Amen. out that candle. I want to say a couple of things to you. Number one, one of my favorite things about this candle lighting is that uh, we light a couple candles, I turn around and half the room is is on fire uh, it spreads so quickly and, and that is i think a picture of the gospel right that the, the gospel spreads from person to person as you love with this great advent love on a second note and this is just for you uh, third service alone first and second service did not get this there is a sixth kind of advent love that i didn't mention one that helps stack chairs if you would help us at the end <laughs> We would very sincerely appreciate that. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Thank you for your help.